today we start or continue um, in our series called Fight the Drift out of the book of 1 Corinthians. As you can see there, uh, today's sermon will be titled uh, The Power of the Cross, Part 1. So next week, um, if uh, in the words of my dad, if the Lord tarries um, and we get to meet on the Lord's Day next Sunday, uh, we will have some baptisms that will be taking place. And so if you need to be baptized and would like to talk to one of us pastors about that, next Sunday is a great time to do that. Um, also, we will do part two of this. I'm literally going to go um, as far as I think I can go today uh, with this, and then we're going to pick back up um, even with some more verses uh, next uh, Sunday as we conclude this, this little mini-series within our, our series called Fight the Drift. So please read along with me. As we read um, from the very word of God, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1. 18 of chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, like the one, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of God. In the 1800s, uh, there was this very famous German philosopher named Friedrich, Friedrich Nietzsche. And uh, Nietzsche once said this 
toward the middle to the end of the 18th century. And let's read this quote together. He said this, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. We will wipe this blood off of us. What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred game shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? We must... Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? Again, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. Now, oftentimes, you may have heard this in history class or in college or read this. It was even on the cover of, I think, either Time or Newsweek um, several years ago. It was this statement that God is dead. Now, it's, it's often misunderstood of why Nietzsche said this. It wasn't as though that he was just anti-God or any of those sorts of things. But from what I understand that Nietzsche is saying about God being dead at our very hands was that he was not saying that this is a good thing. What he was saying was, is as a philosopher and scholar, that as a result of what's known as the Enlightenment era, that, that it was because of this that God had died. During the Enlightenment era, history tells us, and scholars tell us, that the people that were on the planet did not become anti-God, but rather removed God from the center of the universe, from the center of understanding, from the center of all wisdom, and replaced God with humanity, with man. With woman. The Enlightenment was a celebration of intellect and reason and scholarship. It, it empowered humanity to, to understand the universe, to understand freedom, to understand life and knowledge in such a way that you and I, as human beings, could improve our own situation, even apart from God dealing with with what was going on within the earth. You and I are the result of an Enlightenment era. Much of America, much of our Constitution, much of American philosophy, much of our culture is the child of this Enlightenment thinking. Our concepts of freedom come from the Enlightenment era. Our concepts of what, you know, people love to talk about this is a free will is actually from the Enlightenment era and not a thread that we see um, widespread throughout human history. But man, you and I, the idea of our freedom being taken or the idea of free will being removed from us, from our understanding, is, is complete nonsense to us. We are those people. And, and Nietzsche believed that he saw the results of this on the horizon. 
But he saw that after the Enlightenment era, that humanity was going to become so advanced in philosophy and their own intellect that they no longer needed God, therefore rendering him what? Dead. Friends, again, we are the result of that thinking. Nietzsche had something right from a philosophical sense. Our culture and what we are seeing in 2022, in this day and in this age, is a result of this sort of enlightenment thinking and view of the Word of God and view of God Himself. This has not just been in our outside worldly culture, but this mentality has really impacted the church. What it means to be a Christian. What it means to follow Jesus. The very words of God themselves. That, that somehow we have created this ability in secular humanism that we are at the center of all of this. That it is all about us. And so that's why you and I can struggle even in reading God's word and constantly placing ourselves as the main character. That is because we are the children and byproduct of years and years and years and years of thinking that you and I can intellectually reason ourselves above the very throne of God. That God is a good buddy. That God is a good friend. But we don't really need Him. We're not really completely reliant upon Him. This thinking is immersed inside of the church all over the place. You can pick up on this once you begin to study God's Word and study these trains of thinking. And yet, it is not new and a new problem within the church. Paul, as he is writing this letter to the city, to the church that is in Corinth, they are facing a similar battle, right? Because again, much of the Enlightenment thinking came from very Roman and Greek understandings of democracy and the world. And its influence influenced the Enlightenment movement and therefore has influenced us as well. Remember, the church that Paul is writing to is, is, is filled with a diverse group of people. Some of those people are, are Gentiles. They're Corinthians. They're from the city of Corinth. They're not Jews, so they're the secular people. They grew up worshiping many gods, all of these pagan gods and goddesses. They worship them as these Gentiles, as these Romans, as these Greeks. So those philosophies and influences have been just piled upon them and piled upon them and piled upon them. It has molded and shaped all of those people and the way that they think in life. In contrast to that, the church in Corinth is also has some Jewish believers in it. These are Jews by race, and they have come to understand that all of the Old Testament was actually pointing to the person and work of Jesus, and that Jesus is the forelong, foretold Messiah that is spoken about inside the Old Testament. So within this church, this brand new church, two to three years of age, you had these Gentile, now believers in Christ, and you had these Jewish people who worshiped one God, and now they're believers in Jesus, in this melting pot of cultures and understanding and marriage and traditions and all these sorts of things are resting right within side of this church. During this time, again, there's a high regard for what? For scholarship and intellect and philosophy. 
We didn't have TikTok. All right. So people would often, for entertainment, what would they do? They would go to the city square. There's a famous one called Morris Hill inside the book of Acts, right? Where it was a place of philosophical thinking, what we would call the coffee shop. This used to happen out in public as people would pontificate and, and, and just speak these philosophies of the world and how the world worked. And they taught from the marketplace these philosophies. And guess what people would do? Many of them who could not read and write would go and they would listen. They would be completely enamored by the speech writers and givers. These are the people now sitting inside this church. They've been intellectually stimulated. They've had their hearts and their minds attuned to rhetorical persuasion because it was highly valued. And we've had some people like that in our culture, right? In our history, that when they seemed to speak, people listened. One of the interesting things about Martin Luther King Jr. is that when he gave the I Had a Dream speech, was that was not the speech that he had wrote that day. As he stood there, someone on the front row um, and I, I, man, I, I like this mentality. It was probably, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Jr. professed to be a, uh, a, a pastor of some sorts. And, and so you get this picture as he is this great speaker, this great orator. And as he's given his written down manuscript speech, someone in the front row there began to yell out, Martin, you tell him your dream. Martin, tell him your dream. And he simply put his papers to the side and spoke that off the top of his head. We have some people like that in our history, that when they seem to speak, that people get really enamored by it. I mean, think about the thousands of podcasts that are out there, the YouTube channels, the, the education, whether it's fake news or real news. I don't know. Who, who knows absolutely what is being communicated? But all of this information is just information overloaded to us, and it is, sharp, it is shaping us. It is, it is molding us. You and I are being discipled by the things that we're watching, listening to, and paying attention to. These people with inside the, the city of Corinth, inside the church of Corinth, are no doubt experiencing a very similar experience. In the shadow of the majority around them, there's the church. And the church is not centered on science. The church is not centered on mathematics. The church is not centered on the great debates or current streams of thought. But rather, the church centers itself on a, a man named Jesus from Nazareth, which it was believed that nothing good could come from that place. He has no royal upbringing. Dad probably... Is it died early inside of Jesus' life. He was a peasant man walking around from town to town. He had no place to lay his head. 
And yet at the center of this church and at the center of what should be all churches is this man named Jesus. And it's not science and it's, it's not mathematics and it's not English and it's not all of these sorts of things of intellectual stimulation from a worldly perspective. No, it is about a peasant man who was God and gives his life upon the cross. The early church, what did they have? They had a, 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 an eyewitness accounts of who this Jesus was. They had the Old Testament. They had people and hundreds of people that professed to have seen Jesus after the resurrection. There was a major difference in the way that this small group of people in the shadow of this city and culture and world, how they saw the world and how the world around them saw the world. And yet, what happens inside of this small church is that this idea becomes very difficult on a certain group of people within the church. Man, they wanted to hear more than just the same story of Jesus dying on the cross. Maybe they had become ashamed of that story. Maybe they had become embarrassed of that story. Maybe they had become numb to the repetition of hearing, Jesus died, Jesus buried, Jesus resurrected. And, and yet they could go right outside and just, or maybe for us, turn on their, their phones and see a, a much more compelling story. We don't binge watch or binge read the Bible, do we? But you and I can all get captivated on a, a less than icy day when everything is canceled because it's a little wet. And turn on the television and spend hours. I'm only going to watch one episode. I mean, you're just drooling, got Cheeto fingers, right? Hours have passed by as you're still in your PJs from two days ago. We don't binge read the scripture and yet, man, we can get really enamored with entertainment and the things that are right at the palm of our hand. Every fantasy, every desire, every want as our culture is discipling us, as they're entertaining us. And let's face it, they do it much better to very core being of what we want to our hearts than the church will ever do. And inside the city of Corinth, inside the church of Corinth, man, they began to feel this tension day in and day out, hearing the same old story about a peasant man who's God, man, Jesus died on a cross. He was buried. He was resurrected. Let's take up an offering. Let's have a potluck and let's go to the house so we can check this off and get back to what we really want to do. They needed something deeper than the cross of Christ. Let's face it, the world just sounds much smarter than Christianity. And with that mentality, we find ourselves in what we are calling the drift. The life of the Christian and the unity of the church is centered not on humanity and its reasoning, but rather on Jesus and his word. See, Jesus and his word is what the Bible would call a two-edged sword. Paul is pleading with the church to be united. 
isn't he? And yet, what is he simultaneously doing? Dividing with the same words. This passage in Scripture begs the question of the Corinthians and also of you and I, my friends, of which side are you on? Which side are you on? Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In this very text, we see in verse 18, if you're circling, highlighting, underlying, that idea of the word of the cross is folly. The message of the cross is folly. When we study this word, when we look at the word folly, it's actually where we get the word moron. All right? Now, kids in the room, I'm about to say a bad word if you grew up in the Baker house, but it's where we get the word stupid. We don't call anybody stupid in the Baker house growing up. We don't do that. And so the Bible here is saying the word of the cross is stupid. The word of the cross is, is, is ridiculous. Um, the word here, folly, means that a person is intellectually weak and lacking good judgment. These people have lost their other love and mind. Do you understand that Romans and Greeks often called these people called Christians? We were called atheists because why? They had many gods and we only had one. That was their thinking. And so the idea of their gods or goddesses being dumbed down to just being one, and he is not wealthy, he does not sit on an earthly throne, he is a peasant walking around healing people and preaching, and who even knows if it was really, you know, just this great, if you were to compare Jesus maybe to this great orator within their culture, And yet there was something truly captivating about what? Jesus and his message and his ministry. But we see in this passage that the cross is dumb. See, within this time period, the idea of a human intellectually reasoning that the Savior of the world dying on a cross would have been understood as the most idiotic nonsense known to man. It was complete foolishness. Please stop with the Jesus talk. I mean, I, I went to public school, all right? And in public school, they teach you something that's real dumb. It's called A plus B equals C, right? I don't know how they get numbers out of letters, but kids, they'll tell you that in some way that, that they equal numbers. We're still trying to figure out what X is. You'll spend all kinds of time trying to figure out what X is. You will never use that stuff when you become this guy, all right? But... For some reason, we're teaching you, can't, can't balance a checkbook, can't, cannot change, but buddy, you can figure out what X is. All right? Everybody got me? But in that, you know, you can be educated in this way. I mean, think about it. How can one man dying on the cross absorb and take and satisfy the wrath of all of these other people that is coming to them? Right? I mean, it just mathematically does not equate. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make reason. See, physical death on the cross was historically has been the absolute worst way to die. The reason why is that it's, it's not meant to just kill someone quickly. People would hang on the cross for two, three, up to a week on that thing. 
Literally, that you would die of suffocation. And the reason why you would die upon suffocation upon a cross is, is that, that, that you would have to put on the cross, they would put this little bitty seat that was riding right on your back end, your back, that would give you a little bit of rest. And so the only way that you could breathe is literally to lift up on those nails and take a breath so your diaphragm could fill up with air, and then you would drop back down on that little seat. And you would do that day in and day out until you physically suffocated to death by your own strength or lack thereof because you could not pull yourself up on those nails anymore. It was a form of Roman entertainment. Notice, when Jesus dies upon the cross, what are the Roman guards doing? They're at his feet, casting lots. They're betting over his clothes. There's a mockery. There's a group of people. This was a place for the lowlifes within the city that it finally illustrated to them. And this was a common occurrence. Up to 6,000 people were crucified, if you've seen the movie Spartacus, right? This is a common occurrence that was taking place within their history. They saw crucifixions taking place all the time. And crucifixions had the way of bringing out the, the scariest, the nastiest, the lowlifes of all lowlifes to that city. Why? Because there was at least one person that was in a worse shape than they are. In many of these cases, um, people were crucified naked. You can imagine the mockery that's taking place. There are tales and stories throughout history about people being up on a cross so long that their little limbs begin to fall off or animals begin to come up and to eat and to chew on their bodies. Even the Bible says itself within Judaism that a Cursed is a man who hangs upon a, what? A tree. It's the most deplorable act of all because of this slow, painful death. If they wanted to show you mercy, they took you to the guillotine. That's not what crucifixion was about. So imagine here that you're a group, listening to these group of people, and they're saying, yeah, so there's this one God, he's God, and and he's man too, which is, how do you explain that? And uh, yeah, he was born of a virgin. Right. He lived this life. He lived a perfect life. Can you believe that? And, and guess what? At the end of his life, he died on a tree. Now hold up. This doesn't intellectually make sense. This can't be that, that your God would so lay down his life that he would die upon a Roman cross. I'm sorry, but this message of yours is absolutely ridiculous. It is absolutely foolish. Believing in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is absolute madness. And yet... How you respond to the cross of Christ reveals who will perish and who will be saved. The world is divided and eventually eternally divided. And Paul reminds the church of the gospel to make war on these divisions within the church. The church should be united. But what is it that unites us? It is God's faithfulness. The incarnation of wisdom that is seen in Jesus and the power of Jesus alone to save. As these people are becoming enamored with this, you know, intellect and this reason. 
There's the church that is continuing to preach this gospel. And so Paul is pleading with them, do, do not begin to think like the world. Do not begin to reason like the world. Do not begin to take this culture and the way that they think, because you will often hear this, won't you? Even in, in this year, in this place, in this time. Well, the Bible, I'm cool with Jesus, but you got to be careful reading the Bible because it was, it was written during a text and context, which all of that is very true. But it is, it is only, especially in certain areas, about sexuality and about marriage, about gender and those sorts of things, that was a contextual thing. And we have grown past that. I've heard people who profess to be Christ and be Christians just say those very words, that we have, we've gone past that. We've evolved. We've gotten even deeper. Do you understand and hear the whispers of Satan himself and what I have just spoken to you? This is what Paul was contending for. It is what we are contending for. The cross of Christ destroys the wisdom of the world on purpose. The cross of Christ destroys the wisdom of the world on purpose. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the sage? Has not God not made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks to seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is the Lord saying to us in this passage? What is he getting at within this passage? He's saying, yes, that, that he has chosen the most ridiculous form of salvation. I mean, think about this for a moment. If you and I were to create a religion of our own in a salvific way or sal a way of salvation on our own, we would not have chose what God has chose. You need to get this, that when you're listening to podcasters, when you're listening to, um, you know, Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawkins and, and, and all of these guys who are, are, are militant. There's literally a book right now by a very famous man on the planet who has written it toward teenagers to help them understand that they can outgrow God. This is constantly being bombarded with us. I mean, I don't know if you've talked to anybody that's not a Christian as of late, but you will get some strange stares if you start really talking about Jesus and living like Jesus and believing like Jesus. Then, man, there is a quick separation, but we need to understand and be encouraged this morning that this is literally the plan of God for you and I and this message to look absolutely foolish. Why? On purpose. Paul would say here that the Jews wanted signs, right? That's what they wanted out of the Messiah. Jesus experienced this all the time. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're coming to Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. We want to see a miracle. And if we can see a miracle, then Jesus, we really know that you are the Messiah and we will follow after you. And so what does Jesus do? He does miracle, 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 miracle. You read Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is tired of doing miracles. He grows weary of doing miracles. And he says, here's the deal. I got you. I got one more sign for you. It's the sign of Jonah. What happened to Jonah? He swallowed by a big old fish, right? 
He's in the belly of that fish for three days, then he's spit up. It's a picture of the death and the resurrection. He says, I'm going to tell you, Jews, here's your final sign that I'm going to give you. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried in the ground for three days. But on the third day, I am going to be resurrection. And that is the ultimate sign that they need. But Jesus, even right before his death, his, his death, burial, and resurrection, what's he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And immediately after they see this remarkable sign, I mean, they could go to his funeral. They could see that this man named Lazarus was dead. They saw the weeping in the morning. They said that he was so dead that he stinketh in the King James language, right? But then on the third day, he was resurrected. And you could go to Lazarus. Like he's here, he's not here, and then he's here again. But if you've ever read that in scripture, what happens immediately after they begin to see this sign is they plot to kill Jesus. They wanted signs, they got signs, and they killed him. What does it say here in this passage as well? Is that they want the Greeks, that they wanted wisdom. Again, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, you're Greek, and have a Greek way of understanding the Greeks wanted wisdom. I hear this all the time from my college students. It's where is the evidence? Where is the proof? Where are the smart people that believe in Jesus? Where are the smart people that believe in the Bible? It is an archaic book of mythology. We need scientific proof. Anybody ever heard that before? Man, if you could just really show me some evidence. If you just really show me hardcore proof. But here's the deal. If people struggle with Noah's Ark and putting all the animals on a big old boat, if they, if they struggle with the parting of the Red Sea, a flying axe, that's in the Bible, a talking donkey, that's in the Bible. I'm not talking about donkey from Shrek. Like, this is a different donkey. This is Balaam's jackass, right? A man living inside of a large fish. Man, I, I can't believe that Jesus, that Jesus stuff. The Bible is a book of mythology. I mean, a man living in the belly of a big fish for three days. This is crazy. The sun setting still is in the Bible. The walking on water, people being miraculously healed, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, all of this stuff is absolutely insane. And if people have issues with all of those things, you need to get this, friends, is what they have an issue to begin with is actually Genesis 1-1, where it says, in the beginning, God created. That's their ultimate problem. See, within the, the divine, there is room for science and mathematics. But for many, as science and intellect has become their God, there is no room for the divine. The Bible is not a scientific test book. The, the Bible is not a biography. The Bible is not written, though it is history, it is not written as a historical account of all the events that have taken place throughout history from the beginning of the earth to the return of Christ. It is a letter from a loving and gracious God. 
It is a revelation, not even of humanity primarily, but a revelation of God himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you can get past Genesis 1-1, then a man living in a fish or a guy walking on water or an axe flying through the air or a donkey talking, guess what you say? Uh-huh, I believe that. Why? Because of Genesis 1-1. If God is God, then the supernatural can take place and the supernatural can happen. I think there has to be room. I don't know all the details of what happened in the creation story. And yet, I believe Genesis 1-1, that God did it. That God created it. We still have these same struggles. I'll come across people all the time who say, I need to see a miracle. There are whole, and I use quotations here, whole churches that are priding themselves that they follow Christ, and yet it has become actually on a Sunday morning more about these experiences, these supernatural experiences, than it is the God of the Bible and the worship of Christ and the understanding of His Word. Literally yesterday, I saw a baptism video of a person. They were asking them if they wanted to be baptized. This person said, yes, I want to be baptized. And they said, why do you want to be baptized? Well, God gave me a vision that I'm going to lead thousands upon thousands of angels in the protection of the animal kingdom. And that's why I want to be baptized. She said this in front of thousands and thousands of people, and they absolutely erupted in praise. Now, friends, there are all kinds of problems with that. All right? Now, I know my sister's praying her dogs are going to be in heaven. Okay? And I believe that there will be animals in heaven. But that is a direct contradiction to the idea that God is going to give you Authority over thousands upon thousands of angels so that you, while the rest of your life, can be protecting the animal kingdom and their rights. And then for that to be celebrated. See, don't tell me that the influence of the world has not penetrated the church. When, when you can say, support, vote for the idea of a baby inside of its womb, of its mother being killed, that is not the scripture that is not the influence of the Holy Spirit. That is the influence in the reasoning of this world. Not of Jesus and his word. And yet, man, we struggle with those things, don't we? We struggle with those. I need hardcore proof. If you're proper with a, a very popular movement within uh, Christ, uh, the world, American church, is this whole idea of deconstruction. These are people who said that they once claimed to be followers of Jesus, but if you listen to their testimonies of deconstructing from Christ and the church and from the scripture, is they all talk about how that they became to truly understand the truth. What is this? Wisdom in their minds. Reasoning. Intellect. They have come to know the real truth, and what they're saying is, is that they're ultimately smarter than God. And yet, what does the word of God say? He says here in these last passages, notice 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standings. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God has chosen what appears to be idiotic to those who are perishing to be the actual wisdom of God. In his sovereignty before the foundations of the earth, God planned this. He orchestrated this entire event, this entire narrative and story to play out in human history. Why? Because Paul is reminding the church of the gospel. He's reminding them that God saves them through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not on one's status, not on one's intellect, but not on the wisdom of man, but solely on the sovereign grace of God. Brothers, sisters, friends, if you are here and you are truly saved, we must understand this, that you and I did not save ourselves. All that you and I did was contribute the very sin in order for Jesus to then redeem and to save us. Paul is speaking into this idea that in some way that you and God, y'all work together. He made the right choice. You made the right choice. And because you both chose rightly, then you are saved. And that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. God calls. God saves. From Genesis to Revelation, his mode, his way, the means by which that he would save, he is saying to us that if you are saved this morning, the only person who can truly be celebrated in your salvation is not you. You weren't a little bit smarter. Have you ever wondered why, why if all these people are hearing this same message, then why does Bob here choose it and, and Susie doesn't? Is it because he's smarter? Is it because he's reasoned? No. It is because of the grace and the mercy of God the arrogance that swells up into us to think, man, yeah, look, man, I have, I've decided I have done this. I have saved myself. God extended out to me the offer of salvation. And in my own will and power, I chose and took this. That is not the gospel. See, friends, we do turn in faith. We do repent and turn in faith. But all of those things are the result of the new birth And that's what John chapter 3 is all about. When Jesus tells Nicodemus that you can't make yourself born again, that is the power of the Holy Spirit that resurrects your dead hatred toward God. And because he resurrects you, because you are reborn in Christ Jesus, what does that enable you to do then? Turn in faith and follow Jesus so that in all things, we aren't at the end of all things, at the return of Jesus going, holy, holy, holy is Galen and God. And a man is like, oh, y'all definitely won't be saying that. 
But at the end of all things, what are we saying? And you'll hear this from some of our Reformed Baptist friends. They're like, man, all these new modern worship choruses, they just repeat over and over and over again. You know, we get that, the Bible. Because at the end of Revelation, the chorus that we're, if you're getting really tired of singing the same song over and over and over again, at the end, when Jesus comes back and we stand before the throne room of God, we sing the chorus with all of the church. Holy, holy, holy is God Almighty. Holy, holy. Holy, holy is the lamb that was slain. God has chosen a foolish, idiotic, hilarious way of saving his church so that at the end of all things, none of us could boast upon anything other than Jesus. Only he gets the glory. Only he gets the worship. Why? Can I just tell you guys something real quick? I got to finish. Left to myself, I'm amazed every morning that I wake up and still believe in Jesus. Left to myself, I wake up every morning that I wake up still loving Jesus and still believing in his word is a a miracle to me every single morning. I am prone to wander. I am prone to drift. I am prone to just want to give up on on all of this. And yet, I wake up and have woken up since I was about 19 years old with all the education, with all the things, with all the pain, all the sorrow, all the celebrations. Literally, I go to bed thinking, I wonder if I will still be a Christian tomorrow. And if it was left up to me, I would not be in and of myself. But what are we already seeing in 1 Corinthians? That even in the midst of my unfaithfulness, who is faithful? Tell me, church. God is faithful. Jesus is faithful. He is the author and the finisher of this. He is the creator. He is the one that has quickened your dead stone heart. He is the one that takes you from enemy to calling him your friend. We're not saved by our intellect. We are not saved by our faith alone, in Christ alone. We are, we, excuse me, we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by Christ alone. God chose before the foundation of the world to save the church in such a ridiculous way, again, that only he could receive the glory for it. So what does that mean for us? Do we need to just be dumb? No. Do we need to be ignorant? No. Man, we should study things. We shouldn't study the Bible. And when we get to parts that we don't understand, we pray that prayer, Lord Jesus, help my unbelief. Though I do not understand it, do I do not get it all, though I have many questions, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that it is true. And so in my areas of unfaithfulness and weakness, Lord Jesus, help my unbelief because I believe in Genesis chapter 1 where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of Revelation, there's a small little word that says, amen, that all of that is true. And one day, the return of the king. Every little inquisitive science question that you have, every mathematic question, 
everything that appears to be a contradiction between what we see in the known world and what is described to us in the scripture and all these sorts of things, guess what? what's going to happen? is that They are going to be in perfect harmony because the gospel is God's. Creation is God's. The world, the universe, the expanding universe right now as we speak, the universe is growing. Do you get that? And all of that is held by the very sovereign God who created all things. This week I, I listened to um, this, uh, this podcast or something like that, and they were talking about drilling in Antarctica, and they drilled way, way, way down to what is called like thousands, if not millions of years of ice that's at the very bottom, and they brought it up, and then they put it under a microscope, and guess what? They were frozen like little bacterias and things like that in there. They fall that sucker out. And guess what those little critters did? They are alive. They are alive. You know why? Because of God. And for those of us who are in Christ, you are alive. Because of that same God. And because of that same God, you will never die if you are in Christ. You will never receive the punishment that you deserve to receive. And you will be gifted an abundant life in Christ Jesus that is far more than you and I could ever imagine. I have been deeply loved in my life, but I have never been loved in the way that God has loved me. And God has loved you. If you are in him. So which side, friends? We will only be united if we believe those things about Christ and his word. Or if we try to make some sort of milkshake between God, his word, what truth, and the things of this world, and we try to make our own concoction, it will only lead us drunk and dead. But Christ has come to give us life. And our hope and our prayer is through the foolishness of preaching and proclaiming that God would quicken your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.